1 Corinthians chapter 16 is where we are hanging out today, so if you would turn there. And um, our sprouts will be dismissed at the time, so children kindergarten and younger can go uh, to our sprouts ministry with Paul. And um, 1 Corinthians 16. Um, I wish I had the page number for you if, you, if you're borrowing a Bible, but look in the uh, table of context and context, contents, and uh, you can find the page number for the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. We're looking at the last half of this chapter today. We're going to start with verse 13, and we're going to read until the end of the chapter. So just follow along in your Bible as I read. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every, uh, every worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to open our eyes. Father, we ask your spirit to come, to open our hearts uh, to the dark places, the hard places that we have uh, where we have ignored you, open our eyes to the truth in this passage, and as we hear these, these final exhortations, we ask that you give us the grace and the power to live the Christian life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I often think of the day that my children will go off to college, and uh, it's one of those things that probably parents hope will happen. You hope your kids will go to college and then kind of dread the day when they leave the house, right? Monique is staying with us for the summer and I had the joy of watching a mother uh, say goodbye to a daughter who decided to stay away for the summer. And I thought to myself, that'll be me one day. Imagine a, a father who's giving final word to his, let's just say daughter, as she's going off to school. It's been a lifetime of instruction, a lifetime of encouragement, and then finally there's this one last like barrage of exhortations as she gets on to the plane, as he says goodbye. Wait, remember, study, don't cut class, be on time, stay away from boys, keep your dorm room locked, watch your money, stay away from boys. Stay away from boys. 
And, and if you heard a father say that, maybe in the airport, you would know that it's coming from a place of love, right? Those who love others as they're saying goodbye often give them exhortations. Now, the daughter isn't always pleased with her father's exhortations, but she at least walks away knowing that he loves her, correct? Paul loves the church in Corinth, as we have clearly established through this entire letter, and as he's closing it, it's almost as if in the same way, he's just saying, wait a second, all of these, this, 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 this ammunition of, of exhortations that he's going to now shoot at them, launch at them, just all he has left to summarize everything, just boom, 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 don't forget this, don't forget that, do this, and all these people say hi to you and make sure you do this for one another, coming out of love for the people. Now, an exhortation we're going to be using this word today, and so I want to make sure we all understand it. An exhortation is defined, I just looked up online, it's defined as an utterance conveying urgency. An utterance conveying urgency, and we see exhortations all through here. Now, imagine with me for just a moment that there are five rockets on this stage, if you can imagine such a thing. Five rockets on this stage. An exhortation is a rocket that is about to be shot off and directed. These are little rockets that he is giving the, the, the people in Corinth. This is what it means now to live a Christian life and to soar. A lot of dudes, as they give exhortations, as they say this is what you need to do, they essentially say, here's the rocket, this is what it, what it means, this is where you need to be flying, but they don't leave you with any fuel for the rocket. Does that make sense? So we could, I mean, I could stand up here right now and I could give you things to do. I could say, if you want to be a good Christian, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to actually give you five things to do this morning, all right? A, a, a list, five exhortations. And I could easily do that and kind of show you what these rockets look like and what they would be like soaring through the atmosphere. But if I don't give you the fuel, like the power for these rockets, then what are you left with? Well, you're left with a rocket. That was the answer. Or we could say maybe just guilt of knowing what to do but not knowing how to get it the, the, the darn thing off the ground. So Paul as he's closing out this letter to, for, to, the, to the Corinthians, he gives them, there's five, I'm going to point out five rockets or five exhortations, five words of urgency that he leaves with the church, but he doesn't just stop with describing these rockets, but, but he gives them the, the fuel uh, to make the rockets fly. Now, if we don't have the fuel... If we don't under, understand where the power comes from, then we will end up like so many Christians who uh, believe that, let's see, they believe in the past grace of God. They believe that God's grace was enough to get them saved. The amazing, amazing grace that saved past tense a wretch like me. So when we think of what God has done, we think of something he's done for us in the past. He forgave us our sins. He, uh, he, he took us from totally depraved to new life. All true, right? But here's where so many people then err. They go from 
appreciating and gratitude for the past grace of God to then saying, now, uh, as, as I move forward in, in this life, I must pick myself up by my bootstraps and figure out how to make myself better. And so we work very, very hard on our own, out of our own power, mustering up our own fuel and energy to figure out how to make this rocket fly. One girl recently told me that at the church she attends, she's often uh, uh, told of a, a lot of things that she isn't or should be or is doing that she shouldn't do or is not doing that she should do. And she said, I try all week to, to, to make myself better and to do everything I need to do. And then every Sunday after church, I just feel like I'm not doing enough. And I fail all the time at doing at the things I'm supposed to do. Now it's on me to make myself better. At the end of every one of Paul's letters, there is a little surprise, a little fuel tank, if you would, power at the end of every single one of his letters, which completely changes, revitalizes the way that we live our Christian life, and even think of our Christian life. And certainly the way that we hear and receive and accomplish these exhortations. All right, so we're going to save that fuel tank for the end. First, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Paul's five exhortations, these five rockets that are going to be shot off. So let's do it. The first one is this. Look, look uh, as Paul closes it in verse 13, he says, there's five of them right there in verse 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, let all that you do, do be done in love. The first one here is to be watchful. So first rocket, first exhortation. Corinthian Christians, as I close, as I, I, I love you and I want you to remain, be watchful. Watchfulness in the Bible it has to do with waiting for God's return. Uh, it has to do with with. Uh, watching out for false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing who come to destroy. They're really nice and really persuasive, and they're teaching something that's false. Watchfulness in the scripture has, the scriptures has to do with an alertness in, in prayer. It's a big concept in the Bible, to, to be on guard, to watch. The picture I, I get in my mind as I think of being watchful is, is a soldier who's uh, maybe everybody else is sleeping and, and his eyes are wide open all night long as he's watching, as he knows that the enemy comes when everyone is sleeping. He knows that the enemy comes when we are not on guard. And so while everyone else is asleep, this soldier has his eyes open and he is watching for the attack of the enemy, the deceiver, the one who comes. Spurgeon said, Charles Spurgeon, preacher from the 1800s, he said, if, if, uh, or he said, Satan has an attack for every single Christian wherever you are at in your life. You think you're doing well, Satan has an attack for you. You think you're repenting, Satan has an attack for the repentant. Satan has an attack for every single one of us. He is a very, very good enemy in that sense. He knows what he's doing. He's smart. He's conniving. If you're a confident person, 
Satan won't tempt you with insecurity, but he might tempt you with pride. You're someone who has been able to, by the grace of God, develop humility. Well, there, Satan might not tempt you with pride, but Satan might tempt you with despair. You're a strong believer. Satan may not tempt you with doubt, but he may tempt you with self-righteousness. The point is, as we go to sleep on certain, in certain areas of our lives, because we are strong there, we think we're good, we think we're in a good fort, and that is the very place that the deceiver will come and tempt. So to be watchful means to be on guard so that Satan may not deceive you, to keep your eyes open in every way. Now, how does Satan deceive? Well, imagine a warrior who has his eyes wide open, he's on guard, and the enemy comes up with a really great little tactic. He's going to put a spy into the camp and One night, he's going to offer this soldier who's on guard, he's going to offer him an all-you-can-drink Jack Daniels special. Well, what happens? The man gets drunk. What happens when you get drunk? Your eyes start to feel a little heavy, and you fall asleep. John Calvin said this, commenting on this passage. Calvin said, as drunkenness makes us good for nothing, like watching out for your brothers and sisters, The cares and the lusts of this world spiritually ruin our spiritual minds. How does the enemy deceive us? Well, he'll do absolutely anything he can to get you to focus on the cares of this world. Job, money, your image. If he can intoxicate you with the things of this world, well, that is his his tactic. You'll fall asleep spiritually, and he's destroying you. So we don't then get drunk on the cares of this world as we look around at our lives. We instead are constantly on guard, and we are watchful, all right? That's the first exhortation. Second exhortation is this. He says, stand firm in the faith. Have you guys seen the movie Braveheart? Who hasn't seen Braveheart? If you have not seen Braveheart, raise your hand. All right. Uh, after the barbecue today, at some point in the future, we will watch Braveheart together. There's a scene for those of you foolish people who have not seen it, <laughs> just playing. came out in 95, it's an old movie now. Uh, I, I can only imagine in the theater in 1995, this moment in the movie where the English cavalry is bearing down upon uh, William Wallace and his fellow Scotsmen. And as, I mean, it is scary, and it is tense, and as they're rushing toward the Scotsmen, they all have these spears that they're hiding, and the, the, the exhortation, if you would, that's coming from William Wallace is, does anybody remember? Hold, hold, hold. He repeats it, hold, stand firm, hold the line. We have a strategy, we have a plan. Now don't run. I know it looks scary. I know our strategy in the middle of this looks and feels uh, foolish. You probably feel like you made a dumb decision right now. Hold, stand firm as the enemy attacks. The picture here is, is in the midst of a torn, the, the, the tornado of loss. 
of chronic illness, pains, a job issue. All of these things become opportunities for Satan to attack and to focus our eyes and our spiritual minds on the cares of this world, to be drunk on this world. As the enemy attacks, the tornado hits us, the steady directive is to hold, to stand firm while everything else is blowing around you. While the world is moving all around you, we are to stand firm on Christ, our solid rock, and to not move. Now, stand firm, let's be clear here, in what? Because there's a lot of things that we could stand firm in that may not actually be what Paul's getting at here. Stand firm in political affiliations. Stand firm in cultural preferences. What do we stand firm in? Well, the answer is right here. Look at it. He says, stand firm in the faith. This is what he's been talking about this entire book. Remember in uh, chapter 15, verse 14, he says, this faith that we have in Christ is in vain if Christ didn't rise from the dead. But since the resurrection did happen, then we know that we have a faith that is concrete, that is solid. And so stand firm in the faith. Over the years over, of Christian history, 2,000 years, there have been many attempts to move away from the faith that has been handed to us. And so then somebody would sit down and write a creed to, again, articulate, no, this is what we believe. And somebody else would sit down and write a confession, no, wait, this is what we believe, not that, not that. Constantly re-articulating the faith. The gospel, the doctrines of grace, the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, stand firm, he says, in faith. Now, let's just be clear. Our culture is always rapidly changing, all right? Just, just, so, just so we're on the same page, we are not just now becoming, uh, like, like losing sort of the Christian nation status. We never really were, all right? It just, I mean, we felt like it. There was a lot of cultural things, but what is it? Our culture is constantly changing. The world is always opposed to Christ. Human government, while a grace from God, is never going to be the kingdom of God. And friends, we are living in an era where the, the morals, the, the values of the Christian life, the faith as given to us are now, probably more than the last couple of years, just on attack. I mean, culture is shifting and changing. As the tornadoes of change come, along with it comes persecution. As culture shifts, we hear the word hold. Stand firm in the faith. Friends, too often, churches or uh, people who identify themselves as Christians, as culture changes, their theology changes, to accommodate culture. As culture shifts, convictions become preferences and, and then eventually are dropped. Here's where I am concerned. If we, if we abandon this faith, then we have abandoned our only hope. 
The reason Paul is leaving them with this final exhortation, stand firm in the faith, is because Paul knows that this faith is all that we have. Stand firm. Hold the line in the faith. Hebrews puts it, keep believing. 1 John puts it, abide in Christ. Remain in Him. So we are to be watchful. We are to stand firm. The third exhortation is this. He says, act like men. Now some of the ladies here are thinking, that's not quite fair. Why not act like women? Couldn't Paul have been a little more female friendly here? What is he getting at? Well, it's an old Greek term that combines courage and masculinity. So it really has nothing to do with male, female. It's more like boyhood and manhood. Does that make sense? It's, it's actually an old uh, war term. It's a battle term. Like, don't be a boy. Be a man. My basketball coach used to tell us, like, he would get in my face, grab my jersey, and be like, be a man. And then after I peed my pants, I would go, be a man. <laughs> be a man. Be manly. John Calvin, I quote Calvin again, he, he, he uh, translated this, interpreted this as stirred up to manly fortitude. It's often in some translations just simply translated, be courageous. Be courageous. It's the war analogy. Be strong and courageous as you're going into battle. Listen, we are naturally weak. I don't mean physically weak. We are naturally spiritually weak. What I mean by that is as we see the English cavalry coming toward us, we say, no, not hold, not stand firm. That direction is where I want to be. I want to run. I want to quickly change my uniform and become part of the cavalry. We are naturally, in and of our spiritual selves, not strong, but we are weak. I mean, think of the toughest dudes you can imagine. The toughest guys you can imagine. Naturally weak. Toughest dude on the corner. Drives a nice car. He's hard by all cultural standards. He's, he's the cultural definition of masculinity. Friends, our cultural definition of masculinity is wrong wrong because so often quote-unquote men as one gospel rapper put it uh, men with muscles and a mustache are, are, are spiritual wimps like weak in all the areas that really matter when it comes to faith when it comes to leadership when it comes to preparation for eternity, when it comes to standing up against the cultural tides of the day, when it comes to walking away from the intoxication of this world, spiritual wimps, but be courageous, Paul says, be manly, step up. This then naturally leads us to his next exhortation The fourth one, he says, be strong. Now, the Corinthians, as you might remember, 
um, they had a dude who was having sex with his stepmother. Remember that situation? And nobody in the church had said anything. There were people who were doing church on Sunday and then Tuesdays going back to the idol, uh, idol worship in the temple. Going back to the thousand temple prostitutes. And nobody said anything. There was issues where people were questioning the doctrine of the resurrection. And it was, it was unaddressed. As Paul looks at, at the state of the Corinthian church, he knows where they've been weak. He knows how hard it's been and he simply says, be strong. Now he also knows this, he, they are given a message uh, in Corinth that is sure to raise conflict and opposition. All right, They are given a, a message that is going to lead them down some very difficult roads. And the weakest among them are going to be caught up in the culture and walk away eventually from the Christian message because it's too hard. And it's much easier to go along with the culture of the day. Paul knows that for them to be a Christian and for us today means that you are given a message and a title and a way of life that is sure to bring about opposition. Friends, when opposition comes your way, you know that you are a Christian. When opposition comes your way, you know that you're in the right place. And you're doing God's will. A doctor who has to determine how to counsel a girl that wants an abortion. A guy who used to run the streets. And now, this is a friend of mine, now, as he got a job, turned his life around, he's being seen as soft. I mean, wherever we're at in life, opposition to the Christian life, the Christian message will come. Get to the point in a relationship where you tell friends and family members that they are sinners under the wrath of God. You give them the only message that they need to hear. And you'll find that opposition is quick to come. Or even opposition in your own personal life. The cravings. The anger. He says, be strong. Will you be watchful? Will you remain on guard? Will you be uh, steadfast, stand firm in the faith, have courage and be strong as the cavalry attacks, or are you going to turn and run? That is the question that Paul is leaving the Corinthian church with, and the question that God is leaving with us. There was a man in the middle of the second century named Polycarp. Polycarp was in his 80s, and he was, a, he was a Christian, believed the gospel. In his 80s, he was brought to a stadium to be killed for his faith. Now, the officials didn't really want to kill this old dude because he was old. And they're like, man, like, one person actually said, have respect to your age and reproach Christ. Like, just give up this whole Jesus thing. 
when, when he was told that Polycarp, Polycarp said, I've, I have served Christ for 86 years and he has never once hurt me. How can I blaspheme now my king and my savior? He stood firm. The proconsul came back to him and said, swear right now by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp responded, since you are vainly urgent that I swear to Caesar, and you pretend to not know who and what I am, hear me. I am a Christian, and if you wish to learn the doctrines of Christianity, give me a day, and I'll tell them to you. The man came back and he said, I have wild beasts who are re- which are ready to devour you. Repent. It's funny he used the word repent, isn't it? Because Christianity was a false religion. Repent and turn to our gods and turn to Caesar. Polycarp said, unleash the beasts. Because I'm not used to repenting from what is good and turning to evil. The man responded, if beasts aren't enough for you, I have fire that can burn you. Repent and turn to Caesar. Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire now. A fire that will only last about an hour and then will be extinguished. And you are ignoring the threat of the fire of eternal judgment that exists for the ungodly. Why wait? And as Polycarp was bound and as he was burning, he looked to heaven and he thanked God for the privilege of being a martyr for Christ. Watchful. Eyes not on this world. Not on the cares and the lusts of stuff. Earthly happiness. Standing firm in the truth, ready to teach the doctrines of Christianity before masses who are ready to kill him. Courageous, manly fortitude. Strong. Friends, are we ready to face the opposition? Now, I was talking through this passage with a group of 11th graders this last week. And uh, I I asked them as we walked through these these four uh, exhortations, I asked them, can you you think of, would it be possible for someone to sort of embrace these four things, watchful, stand firm, strong, uh, uh, courageous, to try to embrace these four things and really just kind of end up being annoying, kind of rude, like sort of this truth-oriented, I'm strong, I'm courageous, and I will tell you where you're wrong sort of personality. Of course, we can imagine that kind of person, can't we? Now look at this fifth exhortation, because the fifth exhortation actually defines how we go about the first four exhortations. Look at the fifth one. I lost it. There it is. Verse 14. Let all that you do be done, how? In love. So these four, like, strong, war-oriented, 
uh, let's stand up and fight uh, exhortations and then let all that you do, including these four things, be done in love. To move outside of yourself and to love God and to love your neighbor. What is the one thing that the Corinthian church lacked? Do you remember? They lacked love. They were navel gazers. They were focused on themselves. They were focused on their favorite leaders. They lacked the care and concern for the other. Paul says love. And then he actually, look at it, uh, he, he begins to list names. References. This person, this person says, all he's doing here is just love. As soon as he talks about love, now he, he naturally moves to people. And since he lists the names, it's worth us studying the names, right? So there in verse 15, he mentions Stephanus. Stephanus was one of the first converts. He actually calls it the first fruit of Christians among you. The whole household of Stephanus was converted. And evidently some in, the church, or some, some in his household are leaders because they are told to be subject to such as these. To submit to, to, to those in authority is love. In verse 17, he also references, references Fortunatus and Achaicus. Now those two, along with Stephanus, those three, were probably, most likely, most theologians agree on this, they were the ones that brought Paul the initial word from Corinth. Meaning the reason he wrote this letter is because of these three men right there. They're the ones that told him about what was going on with the, the, the stepmom issue. They're the ones that told him about how they're perverting communion and how they're, they're, they're uh, abandoning the resurrection. Now you can only imagine that these two men, or these three men, probably would not be the most popular people when they get back to Corinth for talking about the stepmom issue and other things. But look what Paul says he says in verse 18, they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. He knows that now because of them putting their popularity uh, neck on the line and, and taking this difficult message to Paul and then bringing this difficult letter back to the church in Corinth, by the end of it, he knows that they will have refreshed their spirits. So he simply says, Honor them. Give them recognition. To honor those that are part of your rebuke is an act of love. He goes on in verse 19. He mentions Aquila and Priscilla. These are Paul's first friends in Corinth. And they left with Paul as he went as, uh, on as a missionary. And they send their love back to Corinth. In verse 20, he says all of the Christians send their greetings. Then finally in the same verse... He now turns and he, he wants the Corinthian church to look at each other now. And he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Could we try that right now? No, I'm just playing. We don't really do that these days, do we? A holy kiss is sort of an, it's an ancient way of showing affection. Some cultures still do it. When I was in central Mexico, there was a lot of kissing going on. I had to come back and tell my wife I kissed, kissed a, few, a few women and men. That's what they do. Show affection. How, would, how do we show affection? Maybe a hug? 
greet each other with a holy... The, the, the point here is this. You don't go to a rock concert and hug everybody that comes. Hey, you're a stranger, but it's good to see you. Welcome. You know, we don't do that when we're out in public and going to different events, but we do that when we come to church. Church is like no other place. Paul says when, when you come together as a body, as brothers and sisters, blood-bought by, by, by Jesus Christ... Show each other affection. Greet each other with a, with a holy kiss or a holy hug or a holy handshake or a holy how are you doing or whatever that means to show affection and love to each other because, friends, we are not an event. This is, this is a family. This isn't a concert. This isn't a lecture series. This is a family coming together. And so we are marked then by this last exhortation and that is in all you do, as you discipline your child, do it in love. As you talk to your spouse, do it in love. As you get frustrated with your boss, do it in love. Let all that you do be done in love. And as you come together, show that love for one another. Now in verse 21, Paul finishes his letter and he picks up the pen himself. Up until this point, Paul has been dictating this letter through a scribe. And now Paul, as is customary to the way he writes, he picks up the letter. He may not have had good eyesight. We don't know why. Uh, he didn't write the whole thing, but he didn't. And now at the very end, he takes pain to pick up the pen himself, and he writes a greeting with his own hand. In verse 22, there's a warning. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, so love in all that you do, love each other, and of course love God if there is no love that is evident. He says, let him be accursed. That is a word that means set apart for destruction. Meaning those among you, Corinthian church, who are not, I mean, there is no love that is evident in your life. You are not loving God through being watchful. You're not loving God through standing firm. You're not loving God through being courageous. You're not loving God through being strong. And you're not then in turn loving each other. You are still under the wrath of God, Paul says. You are still in danger of being set apart for destruction. Man, so what is our hope? I mean, I wonder how you even feel that, how that hits you. What is our hope? How can we be confident to be people of love, to be people who are watchful and stand firm and love God and love the Lord and love each other? What is our only hope? You see these five rockets, these five exhortations, they need fuel, don't they? We can't just be given an exhortation and then somehow figure out how to muster up enough energy in and of ourselves to go about and do it. And the threat of a future curse doesn't necessarily give us the power that we need, so what is the power? The power, the fuel tank, if you would, is at the very end of every single one of Paul's letters. Look at it in verse 23. There it is. 
He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now we have past tense grace, grace that forgave our sins and saved us. Here we see the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, future tense. Meaning, how is it possible that as this is summed up and as we are closing this letter, how is it possible that we could be this? How is it possible that we could launch these rockets of exhortation into the atmosphere? How is it possible that we could love one another and love the Lord? May the grace of the Lord be with you. It's the future grace of God. This is what John Piper says. He says, the only life I have left is future life. No brainer. The past is gone. All expectations of God are future expectations. And all the power that touches me with help to live is future power. As precious as the bygone blessings of God may be if he leaves me with only these and not with the promise of more, I will be undone. My hope for future goodness and for future glory is future grace. That last line deserves repeating. Let me read it again. My hope for future goodness and for future glory is future grace. As we think about moving beyond and living the Christian life and standing firm, our hope to better ourselves is not the power that we have within, but it is the power that comes from without, that comes from God, the future grace of God, which is the fuel and the power for these rockets to lift off. See, I used to think of grace as all past tense. Grace got me saved, but now it's up to myself to improve myself and to become a better person. These five exhortations without grace have no fuel. Don't you realize that God could, if He wants to, if He chose to, He could destroy you. God could have said, hey, I'll get you saved, but from that point on, it's up to you to make yourself better, to follow me and to, be, to, to earn your way into the kingdom. No, God didn't do these things. God said, your hope for salvation, the hope of forgiveness, it's completely something that Christ has done for you on the cross. And the hope of remaining the hope of growing in holiness and in love is something that I will do in you and for you. It is a power that I will give you as you move forward and stand firm. Paul, as he deals with a thorn in the flesh, he says, your grace is sufficient. What does that mean? It means the power that I will give you to get through is enough. You're facing persecution. The power that God will give you to get through is enough. You're facing Monday morning. The power that God will give you to get through is all that you need. Addiction, temptation, relational problems. The power that God will give you is all that you need. God's grace be with you as we close this letter and seek to live out our Christian life. God's grace be with you as we leave church this morning. 
and we try not to forget Jesus. God's grace be with you as you face the challenges of work. God's grace be with you as you deal with a sick child. God's grace be with you as your life seems to be falling apart. God's grace be with you as you fight laziness and depression or as you fight overwork and pride. God's grace be with you as you keep your eyes focused on Him and wide open, watchful against the attacks of the deceiver. God's grace be with you as you stand firm in the faith. God's grace be with you as you remain courageous. And God's grace be with you as you are strong. God's grace be with you as you love the Lord. God's grace be with you as that love turns to love for each other so that all you do may be done in love. Listen, this is what I'm trying to say. You are filled with the fuel of God's grace. God's grace is the power that you need so that these rockets may be launched. You already have everything that you need because you have the promise of God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And the work that I started in you is a work that I will finish in you. So as we close this series, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, let us be motivated by the grace that we have, the strength that we have. Let us, let us put our hope into the power that you are giving us through Christ through the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And then let us not be lazy in our spiritual walk, but let us act in confidence to know, knowing that you will give us what we need to persevere. And let us remain in Christ. Let us abide in Him. Let us keep believing. Let us stand firm. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.